Sweet. Listeners, welcome to episode 002 of the Gunfighter Project. Uh, my guest today is Dustin Osborne, uh, a current serving uh, Queensland police officer. Uh, Dustin started the academy in 2008 uh, and 15 years later, he's still uh, on the roads doing the good thing. He's worked as a senior firearms instructor for about 10 years uh, and has a hot bunch of accolades uh, in that field. And today our focus will be on home security and what you can do if you find yourself in a dangerous situation in your own home. So Dustin, welcome to the show, mate. Thanks very much, mate. Good to be on and doing something a little bit different. Yeah, I mean that's uh, that's what I'm trying to do. I mean, we'll see if it we'll see if it takes off. Episode zero uh, zero one came out last week with uh, Maddie Morris, so um, we'll see how that goes. And then another really good guest in yourself. So probably wouldn't get that far, but yeah, well. <laughs> oh, mate, you're the you're the first one that said yes. So in my eyes, you're number one. Oh, well, there we go, mate. I'll take that. <laughs> All right, so Dustin, uh, whereabouts did you grow up, man? Let's start off from the very start. Mate, so for myself, I'm just purely Brisbane-based. So I uh, started in, in Brisbane, went to school in Brisbane, and everything else has been sort of Brisbane. So I've, I haven't gone very far or, or done too much in the, the living far or abroad. It's all, all been Brizzy-based. So all my work and even policing, it's all been Brisbane-based. Okay, sweet. So, uh, but you never wanted to leave the Sunshine State? Yeah, look, I actually have. It's sort of been just one of those things that um, with with all my sort of, with growing up in schooling, I've always just always just stayed around with my parents and, and did all that aspect of it because they were always sort of rooted in with their businesses and, and work. So um, from doing that and then leaving school, I started in a full-time work, so I never actually went to university or anything like that. So money was always one of those things that you can't go far or fast without it. And then um, once I started at the um, in the police academy, it was that was Brisbane-based, and then all my postings were to Brisbane straight away. So it sort of just always turned out that that's what it was. I was never a, you know against going away or doing anything like that. Never really actively tried to stay in Brisbane. It was just. That's just sort of how my cards fell, I guess. Yes, wait, so you struck the lottery a little bit, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yep, yeah. Everyone else was whinging about it. I was just like, look, I'm just, this is how I keep getting it, so <laughs> just take it. <laughs> yeah, perfect. So how'd you go in school? Were you uh, were you a good student or did you mess around a little bit? Mate, I reckon I peaked in about year seven. That was it for me. Well, that's so when you I, want I to peak. I, yeah, that's, that's about it, so... For um for my primary school, like I sort of did everything, you know that you, you're supposed to do when you go through that and you work hard and um well obviously as hard as you work in in primary school um so I did that but then when I hit high school I don't know if it was um you know speaking to some some guys just recently it's, it's probably some really good undiagnosed ADHD sort of started <laughs> to really come on into that um that early adolescent period. And then, you know, high school for me was, um, it, it was a massive culture shock because I went to a, a really small primary school just in a Norman Park. And like, I think we had um, 100 kids, maybe 110 kids or something in the entire school. So I went from that to, I think my class in school was about 130. So, you know, going from basically all to, 
well, nothing to all. That was a big culture shock. So, you know, it was definitely the uh, the smallest, tiniest fish in a, in a very, very big pond. So, um, very introverted first sort of year and year eight at, at school. And then um, I guess it started to finally come out of my shell coming through it. But academia-wise, I was just purely not interested. It was just way too hard to sit and listen to sort of that very old school style of teaching of writing on a on a whiteboard blackboard type of thing and you know this is the columns you will follow so yeah it was, it was a hard hard run for some of it what about uh what about sporting did you get into sports as a kid no, that was that, that was the outlet for me was always sports so as soon as i could leave a classroom and stop you know sitting behind a desk and you know writing into a notebook and actually doing something that was, um, you know, manual, that that was when I would actually engage into something. So <clears throat> if we were doing something like, um, you know, technologies class, we're actually building and doing woodwork or stuff like that, I was 100% switched on and engaged in that, and especially sports. But then when we switched back over and started doing like sports physiology or something like that, I was, I was gone. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't there. I was in the room, but I wasn't there. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, that's what you find with uh, most guys that go, you know, first or at least coppers and uh, military. Uh, that's what I found the sports, the way that a lot of guys go. And that's what drags us into doing things like uh, what we do. Mate, I couldn't agree more. And it's just one of those things. It's just the other guys I think that I went through school with, with that same personality type, they were all of that exact same mindset. I'm only going to do the bare basics of what I need to do so I can get in and, and join the military. Yeah. And and that was it. You know, there was a couple of guys that I went through that wanted to join the Air Force and and they were super strict on themselves on on doing um, you know, all the high end maths, uh, physics and things like that. Outside of that though, they were just as disruptive if not worse than me. So Yeah. <laughs> And they went on to join the the military, so yeah, it was it was pretty pretty funny aspect of it, I guess. So you leave uh, school. What year did you graduate high school? Uh, year two thousand. Two thousand. Okay. And yeah. did you go straight into the uh, academy, or did you go another way in your career first? No, mate. So I absolutely couldn't. Um, so I'm a December baby. Um, so I was born in December and started school a year early. So mate, there was kids driving to school in um, in year 12 and I was still, I just turned 16. So I was really, really young when I, when I left high school. So, you know, that sort of aspect of, you know, I, I could say it now. So I look back and I just go, man, I was just super immature for, for the rest of comparison and everywhere else. So then to, to leave school, mate, my only option was to go into either go to uni, which even then would have um, been sort of difficult with my horrendous grades that I come out with. Um, and so the option that I went with was just to go in and straight to full-time work as a, uh, you know, a push bike shop. So like a uh, 99 bikes or Trek bikes or something like that? Yeah, pretty well, mate. Yeah, so I was working at a... Um, the local riders store, which was, um, you know, it was probably a, a midway midway store. So, you know, we used to sell some really good 
sort of top end bikes, but it definitely wasn't the premium one out there. But it was it was a good shop to get into because all through um, high school I was used to ride BMX and I so just living the uh, crusty demons. Yeah, okay. games dreams. There's something going on there because uh, Matty Morris did the same thing. Matty Morris was a bit of a BMX bandit as well growing up. But I never knew it, but you could see it looking at him. He's got it all over him. <laughs> I mean, that handlebar mustache he grew when he started going away, that screams I used to be a BMX bandit. So, 100%, mate. If he hasn't done a full you know, session at the uh, skate park, I don't know who has then. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you're both rocking the uh, the goatees as well now, so there must be something going on with you two. <laughs> it's just because I can't grow a beard, mate. It's just shit. Yeah. <laughs> you're missing the sideburns. Yeah, I am. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I normally colour them in with a bit of mascara on the weekends just to give myself a bit of cred, but... I've got no issue didn't... with that. I'm all for it. Yeah, good, good. <laughs> so <laughs> you go you go join the, uh, the push bike shop, and how long are you working there for? Mate, I ended up working in there for um, – I worked in that, that first shop for about uh, five years. Yep. Then um, I switched over to work in, like, basically the outdoor industry, sort of, um, again, mate, just in sales, just working in, like, a, a rock climbing adventure shop. Yep. So, so that was that was the big thing then. Um, it was sort of during that sort of transition phase. I was actually applying for the fire department. Um, but the the big thing there was every time I applied, they were like, "Awesome, love your application, but we'll we'll talk to you in probably about three to four years with the uh, the backlog of recruitment that we've got currently." So, um, they kept pushing me out, and it was a, I, it was one of those things. I sort of fell into like that comfort zone where you're like, "Well, I like what I'm doing. I, I was riding push bikes like every day, so working in the industry." which essentially was my overall passion at that stage and hobby was I'm working in the industry where I get a heap of free gear, super cheap bikes and, and everything else. But it's just sort of like, you know, you hit that comfort phase and you're like, oh, well, this isn't too bad, I guess. I just keep, keep, you know, knocking away at this. So um, I ended up just sort of getting sick of waiting for the fireys and, sort of a bit sick of spending huge amounts of money as well, keeping all my qualifications up and getting truck licenses and all and all stuff like that, which is all the prereqs, basically to keep getting knocked back from even the ability to apply, essentially. So in the end, um, uh, I forget what year it was, but my, my older brother, he actually joined the police. So, you know, once once he got in the academy and you start hearing the stories about what they're doing and also the diversity of what they do as well, like, you know, all your driving skills, firearm skills, hand-to-hand stuff. Because um, at that stage as well, I was doing, I just started doing martial arts as well in about 2001. So I pushed through on that for probably, you know, 10 years as well. So I had that sort of natural background, I guess, that was sort of developing without me even knowing. Um, so, yeah, I just gave up on the fireys and thought I'll throw in for the police and see how we go here and yeah, just nail the, the first sort of application, which was pretty good back in those days. So was it a decent backlog uh, for the coppers as well back then? Um, they had a lot of recruitment going 
while I was actually applying for the fire department as well. But I think when I actually started to apply, they started to do quite uh, a bit more of a recruitment drive. So um, there was no no backlog for me. I didn't hear about any backlogs. Put my application in and just sort of went straight through there. So, yeah, it was pretty good. So that's 2008 when you uh, started at the academy? Yeah, that's right. So I applied. Um, I think I started applying in maybe May 2008 for the police and the applications just went went straight on through uh, straight into like the um, interview processes, testing processes and then started at the academy and I think it was October. Okay, so fairly quick. What's that? That's five months. Yeah, it was pretty much five or six months from from memory. Yeah, yeah, it, it was quick in in the essence of of government. Yeah, sort of lightning speed in in government terms. Yeah, definitely, definitely is five months is like tomorrow. Yeah, that yeah, that, that's exactly it. Yeah, yep. Yes, yeah, right. So you go through the academy. How long's the academy back then? I I personally, and I'm sure a lot of people listening to this haven't don't really know the details of how that works. So just give us a rundown of um, how the academy works. Yeah, well, the only sort of caveat on this is that from me going through the academy in 2008 to the way it is now is totally different. So um, they did a big rejig a couple of years ago on, on how they actually run the academy. But in saying that, when I went through... Um, you would do everything at the academy. So I started at the academy. Your first sort of day was literally, you know, sitting in a, in a little auditorium type of thing and they read word for word the code of conduct. Fun. So that is, oh, yeah, it's probably one of the best days of the academy. <laughs> um, but they just, yeah, just verbatim, this is the code of conduct and this is basically what you will adhere to the whole time so they did that um and then from there you spent i think about the it's been six weeks basically doing what they called foundation studies and that was just learning everything there is to know about you know society and working with different people and uh understanding different cultural groups and uh how one society will function where the other one will sort of differ and you go through that and you're sort of like, this is very common sense types of stuff. Um, you learn sort of how to read legislation and, and things like that. So it's not just sort of based on that, um, you know, element of society. It's all the, the foundations of what you need to know and understand progressing through your actual sort of academy course. It's... um. It, it, it's a very well. It was back then a very dry, bland six weeks. Um, the good thing was though that was interlaced between a lot of sort of you know physical education training as well. So you're you're out running around and you know getting your fitness up and making sure you had all that the, that base fitness for when you started in doing your hand to hand stuff as well. So that was that was good. We sort of broke it up. Once you kicked over through that, you then started to do like. Um, several weeks of training on traffic offences. So, you know, drink driving, um, speeding, whatever else, all that stuff. And 
how to investigate traffic matters, basically. Then you would move forward and you would do um, like an element, I think it was about two weeks of driver training. Then you would do two weeks of firearms training. Then you would do maybe, you know, two weeks of this. So you were constantly moving around, always doing different different things. You're moving around the academy. You're doing special lectures with various sort of groups as well. So it was a, it was a pretty engaging seven months to go through. Um, then there was also quite a lot of downtime where you're doing assessments and tests, um, scenarios. You know, there's only so many instructors, so you'll sit around for three, four hours waiting for your entire squad to go through and get get tested and assessed on stuff. So that was how it worked. But all in all, I actually really enjoyed going through that process because it was the first time I actually had done schooling of any sorts that I actually, where I wanted to be there. And it was it was all in the subjects that I knew was going to benefit me. So it was probably the first time I actually really switched on and started to get somewhat decent sort of marks and grades in. In, in an education facility, it was pretty good. I didn't mind that. So did you go all right kind of picking it all up or did you have any uh, shortfalls where you struggled? Um, well, directly before joining the um, the police, so I had no um, education background realistically besides high school. I had what they called uh, significant life experience. So I had work full-time for about eight, nine years before uh, even applying. So for me, what I needed to do was have a minimum of 200 hours tertiary education. So I did a course called Justice for Police Entry through uh, TAFE. And the facilitator instructor that I had for that, he was an ex-South Australian detective. So everything that he taught and he did was purely police background. He didn't come at it from like, oh, this is what an investigation would be like. Yeah, if you worked in the insurance sector, he was just, as a cop, this is how you write a statement. And he would get you to write statements. And he would show you legislation and say, this is what we're going to try and prove now in a statement or in some type of report. And he would, and we spent six months basically writing reports and statements, which at the time felt ridiculous. But all in all, it made going to the academy so easy because I knew the terminologies um, and I knew how police basically were speaking because I'd spent six months with sort of this old crusty cop who was um, teaching his life lessons in a six-month course as a police officer. So it worked really, really well for me and I, I found that that was the best way to really just I guess transition in from having no idea to having some idea and then doing the academy. So, yeah, I, I picked it up. I probably wouldn't have picked it up as quick as I did if I hadn't have done that course. It's realistic where I'm getting to. So I didn't find really and much of the academy super challenging, um, but I found it really engaging because it was it was what I wanted to do and it was for the career that I was that I was actually striving for. So everything lined up. I had a really good sense of purpose and I knew that what we were doing was actually going to equate to to meeting and, and functioning to that. So yeah, that's what kept me 
online. Okay. So you graduate uh, the academy uh, in 2008. No, sorry. You uh, got to the nine. academy in 2008. You graduate 2009. Um, yep. So where did you, if you can speak about it, where did you go first? Uh, I'm assuming there's like a first posting to a station. Yeah, yeah, mate. So my first posting was um, a, once you leave the academy, you, you're a probationary first-year constable for a year. The first six months that I did was in Fortitude Valley. Um, and comparing it to what it is now, it's, you know, that was sort of like kind of the bad old days. It was... um vastly different to how it is now in in some senses anyway um so i did six months at the at fortitude valley then i did my second six months stint out at um in the inner west sort of area of uh, the gap and ashgrove so super close together but vastly different so you get there and you're doing your first six months um, how did you go transitioning into, you know, from the academy where you might be not babied, but, you know, you're still in a learning phase to yep. going into, you know, hitting the road? Are you expected to just, you know, you've you've graduated now, sort it out, figure it out for yourself? No. Well, look, there, there are different sort of aspects to this. And, and for me, I was lucky because I went into a, a – probably the best team I've, I've worked with in the police. That was where I, I started off in my first six months. So I could not have been luckier to get the team of people that I did and, and to move into. Um, definitely had some conversations. I'll put that out there. It's just like, mate, you're now on the road. It doesn't matter if you've been on the road for... 40 years or one day, you will be treated the exact same by the people out there. Um, you're expected to do everything that everyone does. If you don't know something, don't fuck around. You tell us you don't know it. Um, or we're just going to assume you don't know it. And we're going to tell you what to do. So you know, don't let your ego get in the way. We're just going to tell you outright and flat what you're going to be doing, how you're going to do it. And I was just like, cool. That's sweet. I've got no issues with that. You know, <laughs> I worked as a like as a sixteen year old mechanic for for a long time with a, a bunch of old sort of you know, sort of pretty demanding guys. So, you know I I'd been told plenty of times exactly what I was doing wrong and how I was doing it. And if you'd done something stupid, you were told that you were just an idiot outright. Like there was no issues with me picking that up so getting in there i felt really comfortable with that aspect and it was good because i just just got on with it and they were great so um yeah it worked really really well and the my fto like so my field training officer who i worked with for that first six weeks he was awesome couldn't have couldn't have wanted for a better guy to work with straight off so i've always been really lucky in those senses where i haven't had you know, huge issues or conflicts with, you know, with people on the job and just not being able to to deal with people. So tracking that you've, you know, you've gone through uh, these first, you know, 12, month, 12 months as a probation constable. Is that right? Yep, that's right. 
Okay. And then, uh, so I've got here, just fast forwarding a little bit, I've got here, uh, so you've been a senior firearms instructor for about a decade now. How did you get into that sort of role? And then is that leading on to the active armed defender package that you were on? Yeah, that's right. So um, all our firearms instructing back in that sort of era was um, based on like a voluntary basis. So for us to upskill in our firearms tasers and do all that, that stuff, we used to go out to regional centres. So each sort of district had their own training cohort. Um, and for me, it was, I used to go out there and I guess the, the honest truth is I just hated it because you used to go out there and it was that old school firearms training mentality and, you know, a lot of, um, you know, current or um, well, generally army reservists as well, they were sort of doing it. So they were bringing in their um, their old school, um, you know, ways of training. So you, if you're doing something wrong, they were generally standing there shouting at you and telling you you've done something wrong. So I just thought, you know, these guys are absolute, just, they're just dickheads. They had no way to communicate with you. You would turn up and your level of skill and proficiency would never move. If you turned up and you could shoot like shit, well, you would leave shooting like shit, but at the absolute minimum standard to pass. So I sort of took that on as being like, this is, this is stupid because I actually love shooting. It's, it's awesome. You know, I want to do more of it, but it's just ridiculous under these circumstances. So what I ended up doing was just, um, I thought, well, you know, instead of having issues, but I'm just going to just change it myself. So I'll apply for the actual um, firearms instructor course. I'll go on it. I'll do it. And then instead of having issues, every time I go out to be instructed, I'll just be an instructor and instruct the way I want to and the way I feel like it should be done and, stop whinging about it and actually just make a difference and a change in it. So that's pretty well how I I went about it. So I applied for the course. I got on the course. It was two weeks of just firearms training every day. Um, you're either learning about the gun or how to run it um, and then also learning skills to instruct it and communicate those sort of those um, you know different pathways of how you're going to do it. And um, the guys that I actually was uh, taught by were, you know, some of the best best guys and realistically now lifelong mates that I've, that I've got. So that really changed that aspect. So I started instructing and I just got really sort of into that aspect of being able to positively change the way people learn, feel about it. And watching people turn up that had difficulties in areas but leaving better, I'm like, well, that's what we should be doing. You know, we should be doing actual proper instructions and teaching and not just, um, you know, the, the old tick and flick on the sheet and, yeah, you can leave now. So that's um, that was the aspect for me. And doing that and having that sort of rapport within the offices that used to train the people, they, they picked up pretty quickly that I was trying to do things differently and with a bit more compassion for the people out there and um, cause conflict in a lot of aspects because a lot of the old guys didn't like it. But um, 
it got me pushed into positions where I was selected to go and do the higher education courses on it. And in the end, I um, managed to do like the senior pistol, senior rifle instructors and everything else. So um, that's, that's how it sort of went from nothing to everything. And you say uh, doing, you know, courses on the rifle as well. Um, I know myself, I've only really seen, apart from, you know, certain these specialist teams, I haven't really seen any other sort of cops using rifles. Is that a typical thing that you guys will rock depending on the role? Or? Yeah, absolutely, mate. And it's so general duties now have a capability to to deploy a, like an AR-15 platform. Um it's it's one of those things that it, it it's kind of it, it's extremely rare to see police officers with firearms out anyway, it's especially in a slow build up circumstance. In the, those slow build up circumstances, though, that's generally where you're going to see the rifle come out. Some good examples of it is in my own sort of um, operational service where I've deployed rifles. It's been where the specialist units are either tied up or it doesn't meet their threshold. And we need to get something done quickly and effectively. So just recently, pretty much in the in the middle of the city, there was a, a guy who was obviously affected by drugs. He'd passed out in a, in a boarding house common area, but he had a, a pistol on his chest. So he'd been out, um, you know, committing offences. He was armed with a firearm and where he's come home playing with his gun and had too much drugs or just finally... You know, they got out of his system. He's just gone to sleep. So we looked at that aspect of well, we can sit here and we can wait for you know the big boys in their in their black suits to turn up, or we can just do something. You know, a, a good plan done quick. We'll get this job done really well. And if he wakes up in the meantime, while we're waiting for everyone, he's in a boarding house full of people, which is going to go bad. So when we do those sort of um, those quick plans, that's where we use the rifle to give us a little bit more extra sort of advantage, a little bit more extra reach. Um, and also the, the presence of having a rifle there, when someone sees that on the other side of it, it, it definitely changes the tides a little bit. So, you know, we can move in and we can effectively use them in those sort of situations and do it pretty well. So, yeah, it works well. And so your, your GDs are undertaking training with rifles uh, properly now in terms of tactics and how they're moving through, you know, whether it be like urban uh, complexes or anything like that, are GDs doing that sort of thing now, if you can talk about it? Yeah, no, they are. So the good thing for us is like when we first started running the rifle courses, it was very much like a marksman-based application. Um, Everything that we do in, in policing, especially with new product, it's very tiered. So you'll start off very low, basically like this is how you use it. This is the basic function of it. This is how you sort of, you know, look through the optic, get your target point, and this is how you pull the trigger. Um, Obviously it's not that basic, but then that will be it for a year. And then they will build on that skill and build on it, build on it, build on it until where we're looking at now, because I started doing senior, um, rifle instructing back in about 2000 and maybe 12 or 13 sort of 
area. And where we're at now, it's like we're at that stage where we're moving through, you know, shooting while moving with the rifle and, and doing some very, you know, good tactics. If you were to put this product on the table and this curriculum back on the table in 2013, you probably would have had everyone just going, mate, we're not, we're not the SAS. Like, what, what are you trying to do? But when you have those baby steps up to that, it looks good. People get used to it. And the other flip side to it is as well, and this is going to sound super corporate and I hate myself for it, but it's sort of like when you introduce the rifle, when we introduced the rifle in the service, the general public were like, why are police running around with military weapons? That's that's just stupid. So there has to be this like this soft opening, you know, for everyone and, and all areas to go, yeah, they've got them, but they're not going to use them very much. So that's okay. It's in the it's in the toolbox, they'll crack it out when they need it. And then when you go, oh, but we're doing this, it's like, oh, okay, yeah, cool. So there's that softer acceptance when you gradually increment these sort of processes. The other thing is as well, for training and training police is like we are so hammered at the moment with with jobs and what we're doing. There really is such little time to be able to train. It's not ideal. It's the complete opposite of the way I would ever have it. But how do you go and teach that type of package, expect that sort of retention of skill and capability when we also need to go and train on all these different areas and different aspects as well? So um, that soft incremental process is how we generally do things. Um and it, it's it's working, and it's where we've gotten ourselves to now. And with this, this is something that I'm really interested in, just due to I've never heard of this sort of thing being run in uh, the Australian law enforcement world. Uh, so this active armed defender package that you've uh, let me know about, um, you know, you see, obviously the most famous one is um, the Lint Cafe siege. That's yep. the first thing that comes to mind, and the TOU guys handled that two commando were you know around um but they obviously didn't get involved so can you run us through kind of the, like the layout of this package and what it's kind of built around uh trying to respond for yeah so i guess the big thing that you sort of need to do first is decipher the difference between an active armed defender and a siege so an, an active armed defender within our model anyway, is when you've got someone who's actively armed, who has the capability, intention, or is currently uh, seriously injuring or killing people and has access to victims. So that's the general definition of what we're looking at with an active armed offender. So if you look at um, the Lint Cafe siege, that whole thing was, yes, he's actively armed. Yes, he has the capability to seriously injure people, but there's no access and police can't get to him because he's got that hard in front. So with with that aspect there, like that's the sort of the difference between an active armed defender and a siege. If you look at... Um, a really good example in an Australian context is Port Arthur. So, you know, at that point, it was believed to be one or very few people shooting people at that time, moving around and, and actively engaging people in a, in a large area. 
where there was no containment of that person. How do you respond to that over the length is totally different. And and that's the big thing that I think everyone gets bogged down on is the, is the fact of with the Lint Cafe, he pushed himself into an environment that he could control. And when they finally did go in, it's extremely hard because you've got one person potentially moving around inside with huge amounts of hostages in there as well. And it's like that is a complete, utter specialist response. Whereas with an active armed defender incident is if you don't take immediate action there, you could have, like we saw in uh, the 2015 Paris attacks, up to 500 people injured through those multifaceted attacks. Um, There's your other difference as well. In Paris, you had the Bataclan Theatre, you had the Cafe Precinct, and there was also the other separate attack, which where that was, it just evades me at the moment. But that incident created over 503 casualties, including deaths as well. So if you're trying to respond to Paris, there is no number of, you know, TOU that can fix that because you would need every member of TOU at the Bataclan Theatre, let alone at the Cafe Precinct or in the um, around the theatre the other little sort of theatre that it took place in. So how do you deal with that? Well, you've got to go to use actively out, actively patrolling in the area and can act immediately and, and could do something about it. So for us, what it was was to build a skill set that could be indented into everyday police work and to then be able to allow us to, to make those split decisions without command and control to actually go and, locate the offender and stop the offender by applying whatever appropriate use of force is required. You were on the team to kind of build that up. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. So there was myself um, and a a core group of four other guys. Um, And what our job was, was to look at all the other Australian models and even international models on how to actually stop the offenders, um, you know, committing these atrocities and implement um, a series of strategies to to stop that. So we looked at how to actually move as, as a small team, so small team tactics, how to move, how to shoot, um, doing things like room entries, um, you know, moving down corridors, moving through open spaces, um, sort of doing moving and covering techniques and things like that. But then also how to link up as smaller teams to make large teams and then how to, you know, create a voice within that team, um, you know, using sort of like a hierarchical system to then have someone manage and direct those teams to then push out and, you know, into smaller sub areas to then obviously hunt that offender out and and stop them offending. And is everybody regardless of what they kind of do, is everyone going through this or is it only a specific sort of group that get to do this sort of thing? Mate, every, every, if you are a, you are taught this as a recruit and it went all the way up to the commissioner. We ended up doing, so it, it took us several months to write the, the package. So we had to, to develop the skills within ourselves 
literally write the the curriculum. So like develop and create like essentially a textbook on what it actually is. Um, then go through all of like the back end stuff like curriculum governance and then get the actual QPS to certify it type of thing. And then push through and we ended up doing 23 week long courses back to back. So it was hugely um, demanding on us and, and especially as a core group of like, you know, five, five guys to, to do that. We worked out of a, uh, an old abandoned school, which was awesome because, you know, we know from American models that, you know, educational facilities are probably one of the biggest hit places. Um, and then, yeah, we started to, to run that and we trained up, I think it was over 500 um, actual instructors to then go out and into our regions um, and, and train the rest of the QPS. Is this the same team I've got here? Um, so you stayed on to write the tactical first aid package. Is this with the same group of guys? <laughs> so the, uh, no. It, it sounds really wanky of how this works, but um, in the when we started to develop Active Arm Defender, um, oh, you know, we're doing a lot of research and we're like the FBI has basically like a research element. So we tapped into a lot of their resources and things like that. And I'm, I'm sort of looking at it going like, you, you know, looking at the percentile of how many times police are shot on a room entry. Like, and it's like, you know, 60, it was like 63% or something like that. Like a police are shot going through a doorway. It's like not shot at, like actually shot. It's like, okay, that's high. We're going to need to implement something in here of, of how to re- recover ourselves and like how to get our mates back out. And then we started looking at the statistics of, of injured casualties. And I'm like, no one's going to go in here. Like, we don't have ambulance in Australia who are capable of entering that, you know, warm or hot zone to start to recover casualties. Because it, my aspect to it as well is, like, if I'm an active arm defender, I've got goals, I've got missions and, and I would have a very sort of loose sort of like Schmiak model of just as police would have had to stop me doing it. But my situation is I'm a lunatic. My mission is to kill as many people as I can. And the execution of it is to take whatever weapon I've got and go and do it. You know, like I think police are extremely naive to think that offenders don't plan, if not more than we do, to actually commit these things. So we need to plan more and more ahead to to stop their mission goals. And if we can reverse them by stopping people dying, then we're taking away their goals and we're removing what they're trying to do, which is a win for us. You know, like every loss that they hit, that's a win for us. So for me, I was like, let's save as many people as we can. Like we're not going to be able to save everyone. There's going to be a lot of, you know, unpreventable deaths that occur in these things. But for people that are bleeding out, then they don't need to be or asphyxiating through, you know, just position alone. It's like, let's fix that. So I sort of really hit hard and worked in with the boys to actually bring in like a man down component into our instructor course. We got that across. We got that over the line. I built that up. That was 
really, really well received by all the students who went through and did their instructors course. So that sort of become like a pilot for TAC First Aid. And then um, once we finished the project for Active Arm Defender, I was like, well, what are we going to do with TAC First Aid? And the boss in there was like, I'll let you stay on and, and keep working here if you do it. And I was like, yep, cool, no worries. So I started to chip away at that. And then um, I got the green light to do it. So I asked for uh, two more staff, a minimum of one, to help me write it, and I just got denied. So um, the the initial package was, was me and me alone, which was a stupid amount of work to, to have to do, but it was 100% worth it to see where it's gone today. It's You're definitely right. something that you are uh, that you need to focus on. Like, and I think that you know it's easy to think everything's going to go right, but at the end of the day, you know, myself being military and you being a copper, and you know, everybody that's done that sort of thing, you, you know, you've never been more vulnerable than when you're walking through that door. If you're the first guy through that door, um, you know, if you don't know, if you're the second guy through and you don't know how to stop a bleed effectively, then you may as well not be going in there at all. Mate, I couldn't agree anymore. You know, like, and, and that's the reality for it because um, if you don't know the basics on it, you will literally sit there and, as a passenger of, of someone's death. Yeah. And, and and I'm saying this because before I went through and before I got educated on it, I've been that passenger on, on several occasions. And it's one of the worst feelings that you can do because you feel just totally and utterly useless on what what is happening. And you're like, well, you know, you go home and you're like, I could have done this, I could have done that, I could have, should have, would have on all these different aspects. But then with the, the simplest of sort of knowledge and the, the most basic of gear, you know, for... For 25 minutes and for 40 bucks, you can literally save someone's life that was 100% going to die without it. So, you know, and then the flip side of that is I've also been that guy as well. And you go home feeling absolutely horrendous. It plays on your conscience for literally years. Um, whereas compared to now, people are going home and they are like dead set wrapping a towel around their neck and like it's a cape when they get home because they're just this like new form of Superman because I did this, this and this. Mate, I've got people calling me from all over the state telling me this is what I did and you can hear in their voice. They don't care about the accolades. They're just so excited to be able to tell someone, um, you know, potentially who understands of, of what they've done. And it's it's amazing to actually hear it. You know, like the the positive mental health aspect in there is so underrated. It's not funny. Yeah, definitely. And I think that gets lost on a lot of people. You know, yeah, you see in the in the states. You know, a lot of guys are teaching like these tactical shooters courses and active shooter courses and all that sort of thing. But no one's nearly focusing on the medical side of things. You know. Preparation is the best prevention, and if you're you're just making your team and the people around you, you're putting them at risk if you're not preparing yourself in terms of being able to patch someone up if things do go wrong. Exactly, and it's sort of like you know it comes back to that aspect of if you're working purely by yourself, 
and there's no one else around at all except you know, like you and your adversary or whatever, you still need to do it. Like there's no excuse not to. It's not like, oh, well, I don't need to patch up them because they're my sort of, you know, my enemy, whatever. And I, I shot them because that's the way it had to be. It's like you need to be able to look after yourself. And with anything in that, that tactical medicine application, everything you learn is generally for other people, but everything is applicable to yourself as well. And when we look at the statistics for how many people put a tourniquet on themselves, it, it's somewhere around the one to two percentile, but that's still a pretty big chance when you look at, well, if you get hurt, you need to know how to do it because if there's no one else there, that's you, you're done. Exactly. So just learn, learn, learn how to do it. So those those courses that they are running in America, it's just like if you're doing anything to do with shooting, firearms, edge weapons, knife fighting, martial arts, you should be doing some form of reversal training in there as well. And not for, not only for yourself. I'd imagine, um, I know going through like all the medical training and stuff, um, and I haven't done nearly enough as what most people that are we coming on this show have done, but I've done the basics. You need to know how to patch up the other person as well. You know, you can't go in there with a gun, especially as a cop, I'm assuming. If you're going in there with a gun, you have to use it. You need to know how to, yep. you know, best patch that person up, even though you might not want to, you're still going to have to. Yeah. Yeah. Not speaking about it, like Queensland police sort of policies and stuff, but looking at like the, the greater over sort of like the umbrella policies through like the Australian New Zealand Policing Advisory Agency, which is ANSPAR, they've got huge amounts of, um, you know, policy on the fact if I was to, and, and especially within the actual states as well, and, and I know a lot of the state police services like this, if you OC spray someone, so cap spray them, you have to have that person in your direct custody and care for a set period of time. It's normally around an hour where you have to observe them to make sure that you're providing them aftercare, you're flushing their face out appropriately, their respiratory system isn't uh, compromised by any state, they're not having any allergic or adverse actions to it. And that's for AC spray. If you taser someone, you have to go through this section where you remove the probes. Uh, if they're in any sensitive areas, you can't, you know, pull them out. You have to get medical directors to do, or medical agencies to do that. You've got to use an alcohol swab over each probe hole. You've got to put band-aids on each probe hole. Realistically, for, for someone that's been tasered, five seconds after they've been tasered, they're, they're probably ready to fight you again. But if you shoot someone, even with ANSPAR guidelines, it just says you must render aid to persons affected by that scene. So the grandma that just watched you shoot someone, they're affected by it. So who gets priority? You know, there's there's so little prescriptive circumstances and, and policies written around who gets provided aid in those circumstances. And it's like, you've just shot someone, but there's no actual policy surrounding what needs to be done once you've applied lethal force as compared to non-lethal force. It's just, it, like, it's mind-blowing of how sort of archaic it is we've always carried guns 
OC spray and taser, all these things have been added on generally after about 1998. You know, tasers were bought in. I remember doing some of the first taser courses back in like 2009. So, you know, they've never gone back and looked at what we've already got and said, you know, hey, what happens if we need to reverse the, the effects of this as well? It's like, no, nah, just call the AMBOs, they'll fix it. It's like, if ambos are more than 30 seconds away, you've lost that fight. That's gone. Exactly. Now, just uh, just quickly before we move on to the theme of the show uh, today, just want to touch on a quick one. Uh, so you're a dignitary p- protection officer, and you I've got here that you've worked uh, at the Commonwealth Games with uh, the newly made King King Charles. So how, how was that? Mate, it was... Yeah, it was awesome and, and definitely some of the best experiences that I've, I've had in, in dignitary protection as well. So um, leading, well, I'd finished Active Arm Defender, I'd done TAC First Aid and I had done all that aspect of it. So um, I'd been dignitary protection since um, before the G20 summit. So I've been working with the teams and I, I you know worked in the office for quite a lot of time. And then coming up to it, I started speaking to the boys and they reached out as well in relation to doing some more bespoke medical training. So we were doing that and um, just sort of leading on from those conversations and running some training for them on on what we were doing. We we kicked up and they're just like, you know what, this is has an easy option. You just do it there. So uh, I got put on King Charles's team or then Prince Charles's team. So we cracking event took him to the Bundaberg distillery which yeah he had a ball started, did his own rum tour and made his own rum so um yeah all in all though it was it was awesome because you're like you know you're working with the royal protection teams from from uh the UK as well um and it's just moving someone of that status around and seeing how everything operates is is amazing yeah. Um, like I'd working in G20, um, I was in more peripheral teams in there. So I never had any direct dealings with working with the big teams. But, you know, you see the, um, you know, the president of America um, when he comes in and he brings his total entourage with him, like that's impressive. And especially when you see the technology that they bring with it. Um, you know, we had Obama here, we had Putin. Uh, here at the same time and and watching those motorcades almost competing with each other to be the biggest and the best is it's impressive just to stand back on the sidelines as I was on those areas but them being on the actual teams for um for Prince Charles and then speaking to the royal teams as well you know like the his air force plane or his royal plane I don't know what the, the best term for it is but when they come you know I was talking to the guys about what medical capabilities they had and they're just like hey, if anything goes wrong just get him on the plane and once he's on the plane he's fine and it's just like okay that's some, <laughs> that's, that's some pretty cool sort of reassurance right there so yeah, yeah it was very cool. Alright so uh, switching topics to I know it sounds abrupt um, but we are a bit time constricted today so heading to the theme of the podcast uh, talking about home security um, I'd like to touch on before we get into almost like a scenario based conversation 
Um, what would you, in terms of preparation for somebody's home, what would you best recommend for somebody to start going about protecting their families if somebody was to uh, try and break in or a group of people were trying to break in? Mate, I think the biggest thing is, is obviously, is you, you really need to know your own environment. And knowing your own environment is, is one of the biggest and best things you can do. Um, and, and in that, that's that's knowing your house. You know, so for me and my place where I live now, um, you know, I know what my gates sound like and, and understanding what my, my gates sound like. And if you don't know what your gates sound like, make them sound like something. So, you know, like having like those types of, you know, rattly locks on them or, or even putting like a coat can or something like nail it on the back of the fence so you know what your fence or gate sounds like as compared to your neighbours is is a big thing. And then secure it as well. So um, knowing your environment really comes down to, I, I guess it's sort of like that early warnings type of stuff is – you know, people go on about having CCTV footage on your house and and getting that on there. And that's great for investigation purposes, but it generally is not going to do much for you in that immediacy of the, of those events unless you've got like your cool little systems where it sends messages and warnings to your phone and it can wake you up or something like that. But nothing's going to do that as quick as just knowing what the, the stuff around your house sounds like. So knowing what your gates are, the gravel down the side of your yard on your path or your, your footpaths and stuff like that. It's just all those little sort of things that I've always found to be really good. Um, and from my own aspect as well, when I actually go to jobs and investigate where people have been broken into, they're like, oh, I knew they were coming because I heard them come through my gate. I heard them walk down the gravel path or something like that. So they're always a good thing. It absolutely does not deter anyone now. And the amount of investigations that we're doing and seeing from um, like my work aspect is, you know, kids breaking in the houses now, they will literally see a security camera and give it the finger and keep doing what they're doing. So a lot of like the intel that we produce now has got kids staring into a camera, giving it the finger and then continue to break into your house. So um that's probably the, the big thing for me in that initial component the next part is 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 lock everything up you know before you go to bed put a system in in place where you go gates are locked front doors are locked security doors are locked and i've taken the keys out of them you know or i don't use just a finger loop latch lock i actually lock everything with a key um so a lot of these security doors and things like that where you lock it with just like the little finger loop, they're so easily bypassed by um, simple methods, it's not funny. So if you look at them from the outside, there's not where the actual finger lock stud goes through. On the back of it is a blank. So you can actually flip it around. So if, you know, your door opens, Keep the finger loops on the inside, but if you swings the other way, you need to have it on the other side. So manufacturers aren't going to make specific locks. So they just put these little blanks in. What a lot of the grubs are doing out on the road is they just 
put a key or a razor blade behind it, pop that blank off, and then they use a syringe and poke the actual finger lock out or use it as the key to unlock it. So they're turning used syringes into keys to break into your house. So that's why locking things with your just a little finger lock, it's not secure. Use a key, lock it with a key, because then you've got that whole tumbler mechanism working. Um, those security things are the things that secure your house. So just be smart about what you're doing. If you're going to take an extra step of locking something with a key and taking the key out, that's going to keep your house a lot more secure. Um, so, yeah, so that's the sort of the, the big initial steps. Lock stuff up, take keys out, um, and, and, and realistically know the surroundings of your house. This might be a stupid question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Somebody's uh, at home by themselves or, you know, a mother with just her kids home, um, you know, whatever it may be, and they start to notice, you know, somebody walking around the bedroom window or something like that. What's the first course of action you recommend? I think I know the answer, but... Yeah, the, oh, this was always our pre-discussion is like there's what I would actually do um, to what I can promote doing. If you if you were, a, and especially like my partner has this, the same question, you know, quite regularly as well, is, is, is what happens, you know? Um, if it's if it's in the front of the house and you've got sensor lights, obviously always have your sensor lights on working because as soon as that light burst sort of comes on, that's going to really help. If you can't or don't have access to that, try and turn lights on. You know, let the people out there know that you are you are up, you are awake, you are aware. Um, and that's probably one of the big sort of initial kickers to 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 start that early warning process off. From there, um, while you're dialing triple zero on your mobile phone, speak to them. There's nothing more, I would say, sort of soul-destroying when someone's trying to break into a house is to have someone on the other side of the door yell at them and go, you know, fuck off. Or I know you're there. I know you're breaking in. The police are being called. So that, that direct communication is um, is going to be something that's hopefully going to, to be a diversionary thing to, to get them off and away um, while you're actually calling someone that can come and do something about it. As far as direct confrontation goes, especially for single people who are actually trying to protect their um, their families, is never weaken your own structures. Like if you open the door to go out to them, you've just you've just opened the, your house up. Like you've done what they're trying to do for them. And I can guarantee in most cases you're going to be overwhelmed by it. Like you saw the news the other night where there was four guys break or three guys breaking into a guy's house. Um, they couldn't get the screen door open. The homeowner's attacking them. They're stabbing him with a knife they've stolen. And then the guy that's driving their getaway car drives it through the front wall. You know, these people are far more motivated and loose than I think this standard good citizen and Samaritan in a house is ever going to be. And I think it would be so hard to match that level of violence when you're actually also actively trying to protect your own family. It's... um. 
the other thing as well is you might be able to match it one-on-one, but you're not going to match it three-on-one. And when someone's driving a car through the front wall of your house and, and they're doing it, so stay in there, stay locked up, get some, um, you know, interactions between you and two th- from safety or through a security, you know, window screen or something like that. Engage them verbally while you're calling triple zero. Um, and when you're calling triple zero, just always start off with with your address and just the simple stuff. Just I'm at this address. People are breaking into my house now, and if the line goes dead, they will get units in mass going to that address with just those limited um, bits of information. So yeah, that is one thing I wanted to bring up with you was, uh, and something that may seem like people might hear it and go, "Oh fuck, of course." But um, what you're saying, people don't realize that words mean things. And if you're yep. answering the phone and you've got five seconds before somebody, um, you know, starts breaking in, you start to lose focus. Five seconds is not a long time to be able to relay what's going on. So. What you're saying is first thing you should be saying is your address and someone's breaking in or, you know, whatever's going on in a brief summary. The the first thing you have to tell them is your address. Yeah, 100% of the time because it, like when you call from a mobile phone now, it's just sort of like police databases are amazing. If, if you call from a mobile phone and we can see that mobile phone number up, we can pretty well work out almost instantaneously in so many circumstances who owns that phone. But the problem is they're not landlines anymore. You know, my phone is registered to me. I'm registered to this address. But if I'm, I've been involved in a car crash whilst driving on the beach, which I do regularly, and they send someone to my house, well, that's not going to help me, is it? So... The first thing to, to, to get out every single time is, is your full address. So, you know, if your address is like 48 Thompson Street, Carindale, Brisbane, like always get out the, the suburb and the city. Yep. Um, because like the triple O service is national. So if I said, you know, 52 James Street and that's it, well, there's probably a hundred of those within Queensland alone as the rest of Australia. So really get out in your suburb, your city as the very first things that you say. And then um, everything after that's a bonus. So for someone's breaking your house, say people are breaking into my house. And then if everything goes dead after that, they've at least got context and um, they've got somewhere to go. Okay. And that's that's the big thing is give them somewhere to go and then they'll work out the rest from there. Yep. So just to so just to recap before we finish up. So somebody's breaking into your house, the in terms of the prep sort of stages, the preparation stages, like you said, know your surroundings and know your house. At the end of the day, you live there. So you know the yep. surroundings better than anyone else. Know and I like what you said, uh, know what it sounds like, because at the end of the day, you're gonna hear them before you see them in most cases. Um yeah. So know your know your surroundings, know what your gate sounds like, know how it's locked, know that it is locked as well before you go to bed, know that every window, every door is locked and lock it with a key um, because these uh, these scumbags are getting pretty good at what they do and they yep. 
would I be right in assuming that they're always adapting as well? A hundred percent. Yeah. Like, you know, like the, um, the hypodermic syringe through the back of the, the, the door, that was, that was big uh, for a, for a couple of months. And then they worked out that people that was starting to get out. So they started to lock it with a key. So the next thing they were using was um, uh, extended coat hangers or pieces of, of wire extended out and they were pushing it through probably shouldn't be saying this depending on who's listening but um you know pushing it through the top of your roller door and disabling the the emergency latches on your roller doors um and then they'll just have open access to your entire house so every single time someone gets busted someone gets reinvented to get into your house okay so Locking things with keys is so important. Taking keys out is so important. Um, you know, just those small steps in in limiting the access is what's going to make the biggest difference. Because the the big things and the big jobs that we go to where there is strict violence, it's because they've come through an open window. And it's just like if you've got open windows, get a security screen, especially if you want to leave it open, and. I hate saying it because like I fully believe that you should be able to leave your front door open and your your window open and and in, enjoy the fresh air and the breeze that you should be able to. But unfortunately, there are so many pieces of shit out there these days that see that as an open invitation for them to take whatever they want, that they will do it and they don't come in anymore and sneak around. They walk in and they arm themselves. And if they're not happy with your presence there, they will hurt you. Yeah, and that's that's good to know as well. Um, people like to assume the best in cases like that for some reason. Um, yep. But at the end of the day, the world that we're living in at the moment, uh, there is scumbags everywhere. And if if you are listening to the show right now and you're planning on breaking into someone's house, fuck off, you loser. Um, <laughs> so, okay, and know that everything's locked. Be confident that everything's locked. Develop a system where you kind of work clockwise, anti-clockwise, whatever you want to do to make sure everything's locked in your house. Um, yep. And then if someone's breaking in, create a barrier between you and them with a locked door, lock yourself in a bathroom, whatever it may be, call triple zero. And then the first thing you're going to say is your address. And then if you've got the time, what's going on, and then you can start to develop that context. But give them the address before anything with your state, city, that sort of detail. Yeah, hundred percent, mate. Yeah, and call triple O early. It's like it's it's people always wait till they're totally freaked out before they call. It's easier to, to say halfway through the triple O call. Oh, hang on. It's sorry. It's my husband home. Super early. Um, I, I'm sorry. I've overreacted, and you hang up, and they cancel everything. The worst thing is to go. Oh, geez, he's home early, and be walking around and not really caring about it, even though you've got that, you know, the hairs on your neck are standing up. You've got that full intuition saying this is not right and you're working yourself up because for the average person, they can't manage a critical incident and be able to speak functionally and provide distinct information when they're under acute stress. So start doing that process before you hit that so you've got the bandwidth to actually help yourself because after you terminate that call, you're going to be by yourself, depending on your response time from police, for probably five to six minutes. 
And that's a reality of it because the call's got to be transferred from the call data to a computer system given to a dispatcher who then has to call it on the air and, and a police unit to respond to it. And if we're tied up doing 15 jobs and they've got to get another crew from another area, that's more time. Yeah. So give yourself more time by calling early, providing smart details and, and, and get the crews, you know, rolling sooner than later. I think that dispels a lot of people, uh, you know, I know that when I was younger, I was worried about calling triple zero if I saw something just in case I had it wrong. You're not going to get in trouble if you call up and you're trying to be precautious. Obviously, don't call if it's the middle of the day. You know your husband's coming home at 1 p.m. It's 1 p.m. and then you hear a fucking sound. Yeah. Be, be smart about it. Trust your gut. But if it is there and you do have something in your head going, fuck, something's wrong here you're okay to call triple zero and then confirm, say, hey, look, sorry, I've made a mistake here, but this is really weird. I'm sorry. Yep, 100%. And it's the difference between ringing up the fire department because you're, you're drunk and you're barbecue smoking a bit too much and you're like, come and put the fire out as compared to actually thinking you're in trouble. Yep. So assume the worst case scenario and then confirm it is a way to yeah. think about it. Yeah, and, and doing those sort of early intervention steps for yourself of get up, get out of bed, turn the lights on, have a look, converse with, with it. Because if you were to yell out to someone and go, oh, I know you're breaking in and your husband's like, well, your wife is like, sorry, I'm just late home, straight away your anxiety is going to hit the deck. You'll probably abuse them when they walk in because you've, you know, they've scared the shit out of you or whatever else. But if you don't do that, then you're going to get yourself wound up, wound up, wound up, and then you're not functional. Yeah. So we all know the fact of what it's like when you are getting that adrenaline response, your heart rate's right up and you need to start thinking about stuff. It doesn't work. Exactly. Yeah. And people that uh, have that sort of training like yourself um, and like, you know, veterans and all that, it's easy for them because they've faced, you know, that adrenaline. Mm. They know exactly how... They, uh, they react to it, but people that have never yep. faced it, you've got no idea what happens when shit hits the fan and you have no <laughs> idea how you're going to react. That's it, mate. And when you hear that first bump in the night, get up and investigate it. Don't yep. wait till you hear the second bump in the night. And the other thing is as well, if you know the noises that your house makes, you don't need to get up and investigate it because you know it's your neighbour's gate, not yours, or yep. you know it's your neighbour's door or whatever else. So that's why you do it. Yeah, yeah exactly. So... Dustin, I just want to extend my thanks to you for taking time out of your day to um, come on the show. Um, you provided a very unique insight into not only your, you know, your career and how things have gone, and you know, provided myself a look into how you guys do things nowadays in the police force, um, but also how people can react from a somebody that's, I'm sure, investigated thousands of those sort of scenarios. Um, a pretty good insight of what people can start to look at before uh, before it's too late. Absolutely, mate. Yeah, more than happy to. And once I actually leave the job, I'll tell you what I would really do. Perfect. Thanks, mate. I really appreciate that. <laughs> I'm ex excited. No worries at all, mate. Thanks very much for having me on. It's been awesome. Thanks, mate. I really appreciate it. Cheers, mate. Thank you.